We continue the Shir in Navi. The last Shir we had the story of Cheskiah HaMelech, who was one of the greatest Malachim kings that ever lived, which spread the study of Teda throughout, every man, woman, and child. And then, to counteract that, the other extreme, the next king was Menashe, the son of Cheskiah HaMelech. And last week's Shir we discussed Menashe, who spread Avedizoda to a point where he exceeded even the kings before him. Despite his degree of idol worship, still we stress the fact, the Gemara says, that he did tshuva towards the latter part of his life, and though there was opposition to his tshuva being accepted, Malachim in heaven all tried to stop his tshuva from reaching Hashem. Hashem himself, who is of Harachman, was Chete Chatzida Tachas Kisei HaKoved. Kaviyochal Hashem dug a tunnel reaching from the Kisei HaKoved, the throne of Hashem, to Menashe, and allowed his tefillah, his tshuva, to be smuggled through to avoid the customs guards, the Malachim in heaven, who would stop this tefillah from getting through. And that's how Hashem accepted the tshuva of Menashe. We find proof in the fact the Gemara says that Menashe appeared in a dream to one of the rabbis of the Gemara, proving that Menashe did get to Ganeden. Now we come to the point, the story after Menashe's passing, his son Omlin took over. Omlin was again the evil type of king. He ruled for only two years. Then there was a conspiracy against him. His servants killed him. But in this case, the story is different than in the case of the Ten Shvotim. the case of the Ten Tribes, every time there was an assassination, the assassin generally took over the kingdom. That's how it kept revolving from one family to another, from one Sheva to another. In the case of the two Shvotim, Malchus Yehuda, it was impossible to have the kingdom move to a different family, even within the same tribe, because Hashem had vowed, sworn, David HaMelech, always the kings would be descendants of David HaMelech. So in this case, when his servants killed him, the plain people got together and they killed these servants, crowned Amman's son as the new king. Amman's son, Yeshiyahu, ruled for a period of 31 years. In this case, the Gemara says that Yeshiyahu, Tehidah tells us Yeshiyahu was one of the few extremely pure kings, Sadiqim. He was a tzaddik emiss this time. The Gemara tells it how he brought back the Kedusha to the Jews that had disappeared during the time of his predecessors. He sent Chelkiyahu, the king Godel, into the base of Mikdash with instructions to get together all the money that is possible and give it to people who can be trusted. Trust the means without keeping an account. Just give them money without any reckoning and have them make all the necessary repairs, purification in the base of Mikdash. It's called Bedek Habayas. Repair everything that required repairs. The din is that in that case, even an ordinary Israel, not a Kohen, not the Kohen Godol, they enter into the Kodesh Kodeshim. If it requires repairs, even the Israel may go into the Kodesh Kodeshim to repair it. So they, they did this. Going through the search of the Beis HaMikdash, 
they found a Sefer Torah hidden in the Hechal, the Kedish Kodesh. The Sefer Torah hidden was unusual because what happened was at the time of Manasseh, most of the Sephardim, or rather in the time of Cheskiyahu's father, Cheskiyahu Melch, prior to that, he had burnt, destroyed most of the Sephardim that existed. At that time, the Kahanim, the few that were pure, took one Sefer Torah and they hid it in the Kurdish condition where it could not be found. It was so well hidden away from sight that no one could find it. And though after this time there was Cheskiyahu Melech, but then Menashe, of course, again, turned to evil, so that the Teda was forgotten. Not sure in the time of Omlin, people actually forgot what they had known in the time of Cheskiyahu Melech. Imagine the change of the generations. In the time of Cheskiyahu Melech, every man, woman, and child knew the entire Shas by heart. Teda Shabbat Peh, the time of Omlin, by this time, Yeshia Melech, people did not even know the Chumash. They actually, literally forgot every word of the Teda. They knew who they were. They knew they were Jewish, they knew what they were supposed to do, but the Tata itself they had forgotten. Now, Chelkiyo, the Kain Godel, came into the base of Mikdash. During this search, he found a Sefer Tata there, the one that was hidden by the Kahanam, and he took it out, he read it. The Sefer Tata happened to be rolled up to a spot, the Pasha of the Teichacha. Teichacha is the warning by Meshach Rabbeinu the Tata, through Meshavina by Hashem, that if the Jews will disobey Hashem, they will turn away, turn to idol worship, and Hashem will send upon them all the curses of the Techacha. And the Teda was opened to the spot which said, Elech Hashem Eschem Yesmalkechem, Hashem will lead you and your king into Golas, into exile, where you will suffer at the hands of your oppressors. You'll be destroyed, wiped out through the country that will exile you. Uh, Kain Gadol was dumbstruck at this. He was filled with terror because he realized this was the Teda this was the truth, and this warning was a sign, an omen. So he sent a messenger to Yeshio HaMelech with this Sefer Teda. When Yeshio HaMelech read this, a tremor passed over him, a shudder. And he said, we must do something about this warning. In fact, the Teda is open at this point, shows that we are in extreme danger. Because till now we have had Eretz Yisrael as ours, this is a sign that we are about to lose Eretz Yisrael. What to do about this? He said, send a messenger to find out the answer from Hashem. What can we do? How can we get the message from Hashem? Send a messenger to a Navi, to a prophet. At that time, there were two Navian or a Navi and a Neviya. The Navi at that time was Yimiyahu Hanavi. It was a Neviya, Chulda Hanaviya. So he sent the messenger to Chulda Hanaviya. You have a man prophet, you have a woman prophet, which one should you select? The Gemara says that he sent to Chulda Hanaviya for a special reason. One opinion is that Yimiyahu Hanavi was not present at the time. Because he set out the task, the goal, of trying to locate the ten Shvotim, the ten tribes, to bring them back, try to inject in them a feeling of chua, that perhaps they could arouse in heaven a Rachman, a pity where even the Gzeda decree against the ten tribes had become nullified, they could come back. 
This was Novi. This was a true leader of the Jews. Because he was not there at the time, they had no recourse but to send to Chulda Hanaviyah. The other answer the Gemara gives, the Gemara says more logically, they deliberately sent to Chulda Hanaviyah because they felt that Yimiyah Novi had given them a lot of words of Musa. And he would say, now, there, this serves you right. They wanted to get a woman, Nevia, because a woman's heart is softer. It would be easier to awaken in her a feeling of pity upon the Jews. So they sent the Chul on Nevia. Her reply was to Yeshio, who she saw was filled with such a deep feeling of tshuva, of remorse. She said to him, this prediction must come true. It will come true. It was supposed to come true now. Because of the degree of tshuva on your part, you will be granted a reprieve. It will not happen during your time. You will die in Eretz Yisrael, not Golis. But after your time, shortly afterwards, this will come true. The Jews will be driven out of Eretz Yisrael into Golis. So, Yeshio Amalek at least began to bend every effort extreme degree to cleanse, to purify the land of all remnants of Avedazara, clean out all the idols and to instill a feeling of Emunah and Hashem throughout the people. Very fittingly, it's Pesach now, the Tata tells that he made a Chaga Pesach, a Kob Pesach, then on Pesach in a manner that was unequaled. Since the time of Shmuel Hanavi, there never had been a Kob Pesach like this. Of course, there were times before Tavon HaMelech, the Jews had a Kob Pesach, Shlom HaMelech, Tavon HaMelech, but not one like this, not as rich, not as all-encompassing, where all the Jews got together as one, and where the king himself, at his own expense, provided the Kobonis for all the Jews. It was the biggest, the richest, the purest type of Korban Pesach, Kemat of all time. This was his means of showing how anxious he was to get the sins, the stain erased from the Jews, at least during his time. Yomar says that his purity was such that it was recognized. Seder itself testifies that Yeshio is one of the greatest kings the Jews were ever privileged in having. However, the Gemara does say, too, this is a point that's interesting to note that the Mikavega brings this point out. The Gemara in Chul, if you recall, we had the beginning, the Gemara spoke about King Achav, the wicked King Achav, and the Gemara said, did Achav have good followers, good subjects? The Gemara says he could not have, because it's a Pasuk, Meishel Makshev Advar Sheker, Kol Meishosav the king is evil, and all his servants, all his followers are evil too. The same with Yehoshaphat. Yehoshaphat was good, and therefore the contrary was true also. His followers were good. Yet we find in this case that Yeshiyahu was a king who was extremely good, pure. He was so pure and so tamimous, so sincere, he could not even notice evil on others. He was not aware that the people in his generation were nowhere as near like him. He was pure, and his followers were evil. The result was a sad one, because what happened was that the king of Egypt, Padai Nechai, they were all called Padai, Pharaoh, he, they always had a 
additional name to describe who they were. The Chaybis, he was crippled. This crippled Pharaoh, he went out to do battle against the kingdom of Ashur, who was weak at that time. And in order to get to Ashur in this battle, he had to go through the Israeli land. So he asked Yeshiyahu not to stop him, because he said he had a message from Hashem, a direct message from a Jewish prophet, that he must go into battle against Ashur, and therefore he asks no assistance, but no interference from Yeshio. Yeshio felt that it is wrong for him to go through, and he warned him that he would go out to battle against him. He did this, and in this battle, Yeshio was shot, was wounded, his servants carried him back to Yerushalayim, and there he died. And at the time of his death, Yemiyah Navi delivered the Hesped, the eulogy saying about how great Yeshua Melech was, how tragic it was that he was killed in such a pitiful manner. After his death, never again was a good king of the Jews. The short remaining years for the Jewish kingdom were nothing like the time of Yeshua Melech. His son Yoachos took over and he ruled for three months. He had an older brother, Yoachim, still Yoachos took over. He ruled for three months and his folly was that he decided to go out to avenge his father's death. So he set out to plunder the lands of the cities in Egypt. He killed a number of of civilians in Egypt, and Haran went after him, caught him, captured him, took him to Egypt where he stayed till he died. Now, since the king was captured, in a sense, the king of Egypt now ruled over Israel. So he set up as a king his brother Yehoiakim, the condition that Yehoiakim would pay tax to Egypt. However, shortly afterwards, we come to the story of Bovel becoming a powerful nation, becoming an empire. Coincidentally, we had this story in the Gemara describing, explaining the reason for it. You recall, Nebuchadnezzar, because of the fact that he ran three steps in order to bring about a covered Hashem, an honor to Hashem, therefore he was granted the right to become the king of this mighty empire and to drive the Jews into Golis. Now, at this point, Nebuchadnezzar went into battle against Egypt. It was a very simple victory for him. So he now contained Paro, who no longer could leave his country. Then he took over the ruling power over Yehoiakim and forced him to pay taxes, very heavy tax to Bobo. Yehoiakim ruled for a period of 11 years. When he passed away, his son, Yehoiachin, took over the kingdom. Yehoiachin ruled for three months. He decided to go out to greet Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babel, and to show his subservience, show he is surrendering to him everything. He wants to have peace with Nebuchadnezzar. This is because just before his death, Yehoiachin had, his father had rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, that incurred the wrath and anger of Nebuchadnezzar. He went out now to appease him, the appeasement policy. When he went out there, instead Nebuchadnezzar took him captive, brought him to Bovel, placed him in a dungeon, a prison. 
Yochum stayed in that dungeon until the end of this story, until the end of the story of the Jews of the kingdom. Meanwhile, in his place, Nebuchadnezzar crowned Sitkiyahu. Sitkiyahu was Yochum's uncle, which means that Sitkiyahu was the third of the three brothers. Remember, there was Yochoz, and then in his place, Yochum, and now Sitkiyahu took over. Sitkiyahu ruled for 11 years. The ninth year of his rule, he too rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar set siege to Yerushalayim. The eleventh year, that's the final year of Sitkiyahu, the ninth day of the month of Tammuz, Yerushalayim was broken into, and Sitkiyahu saw that this was his downfall. He had prepared a means of escape. This is an interesting point. And those who are, who are alert, those who have visited Eretz Yisrael, Yerushalayim, have seen that right near, adjacent to the Shah Shechem, on the Nechelet Sanchanim, the entrance to the old city, just a few meters away, meters, yards away, there is a sign there, the Oras Tzitkiyahu, the cave of Tzitkiyahu. For a few piastres, you get admitted into it, and it's an amazing cave, a tunnel dug out into a mountain. This cave right now, you can go for a few hundred yards distance. Of course, that cave is much further than you can see at this time. The Gemara tells us that this cave was dug from Yerushalayim with the exit coming out at Yericho. It's a tremendous distance, even by car. This was prepared as an escape exit for Tzitkiyo. Now, when he saw that he, his doom was sealed, he took his closest followers, entered into this cave, and ran through the cave the entire distance to escape at Yericho, where he could then be incognito, not recognized, and settle down, perhaps in peace. However, when it is the will of Hashem that a person suffers, a person has defeat, nothing can stop it. There's no way of escaping from Hashem. So what happened was the custom, was a low type of tribe who were working with the kingdom of Babel, who had broken into the city at that moment, saw a deer running over the grounds on top of this cave, the ground above, and got the feeling of sport. They wanted to chase this deer. They chased this deer until the deer led them straight the entire path on top of the cave, above ground, and just as the deer reached the end of the cave, at that moment, Zitkyo emerged from the opening in Yericho. When they saw him come out, they captured him immediately, brought this prize captive to the king of Bovel, who was in the city of Rivla, quite a distance away. Zitkyo, Melech Yisrael, Melech Yehuda, was brought to Nebuchadnezzar, Melech Bovel. There, he was reprimanded very strongly. He was told, first, you're going to be punished, but you have to know why. Because you dared to rebel against your commander, against your, the one who was victorious over you. You acted foolishly, you must pay the price. First thing that happened was they took his sons, Sityo's sons, and slaughtered them in front of his eyes. While he could still see, they killed his sons in front of him. And then, his eyes were cut out. He was blinded. Of course, it was extreme, extreme penalty to pay. He was actually the last king the Jews had, the last official king. Well, 
It is a mystery, which seems a mystery as to why he went for the penalty of this kind. And Ezel says, very simply, that Zedekiahu was the Gilgal of Shimshon. And Shimshon, because of the fact that Gemara says, he followed his eyes, he allowed his eyes to look, to see that which he should not. Therefore, he was punished. He had to pay the penalty <coughs> with his eyes, and that's why they pushed him, blinded him, blinded Shimshon, but that was not enough, because Hashem is very particular with those close to him, Shimshon HaGibor or Shimshon HaTzadik. You know that he is a Tzadik, of course, as the Nosuzal points out, that the Gemara says, Gedelim Tzadikim Bimisosom Yesim Bechayehem. Tzadikim are greater after they pass away than during their lifetime. For example, you take the first greatest Tzadik of all time, Meshur Abenu, as the Nizal says, Meshur Abenu, who, the Gemara says, achieved the 49th degree of wisdom, but the Chaser Miat Melekim, the mood of his Estalkus, Mayal Al Har Nevai, at Mount Nevai, Nevai is Nudbai. He, he achieved the 50th degree there, the time of his Estalkus. This is hinted at in the word Neshama. Neshama is Mesha Nud. In the form of Neshama, as a stalker, he got the 50th degree. So, here in the case of Shimshin, we find too that the Teda tells us that Shimshin, at the moment of his death, grasped the pillars of this Colosseum, this large stadium, and destroyed them, pulled them down, thereby crushing all the Christian Philistine officers in that Colosseum, the stadium at the time thereby killing war, as the Pasuk says, at the time of his death and during his lifetime. This, Nosazal says, means that the Tzaddik, the time of his passing, after his passing, does more in destroying the Kachas of Tumor, the impure beings that exist. He has a greater power in destroying Tumor after his passing than he has during his lifetime. So this was the power of Shimshon and Tzaddik. Therefore, because he was a Tzaddik, course, he had committed an error, let's say a type of begum, we cannot say a sin about a tzaddik. Error was committed, he had to pay for this very severely. Paying for it once was not sufficient. He had to come back again and again. Zerizal says he came back again as Zitkiel HaMelech, and again as the Gemara brings different rabbis in the Gemara, Zerizal says this was all the same lineage. Yehuda Abba Ben Buta, who also was blinded during his lifetime, in all cases, he came back not blind. He was not born blind. He was born with his sight and was blinded afterwards. Yesef also was blinded later. The Gemara tells, because of his efforts to emulate, to copy his Rebbe, Rav. Rav was of Yesef's Rebbe. Rav never looked out of Daladamis. This was so difficult a matter of controlling a person's eyes. Yesef tried to copy this, and he became blind in this effort. Of Sheshus too, Sheshus also was a Gilgal. The Rizal says of Sheshus is Baba ben Buta, Baba Yat of Sheshus. In any event, these are all cases of showing that Tzitkiyah Melach was not as bad as it would seem. The fact is that he paid for whatever his crimes were during his lifetime, uh, the penalty was a very severe one. But this is what he suffered at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Then Nebuchadnezzar drove all the leaders of 
Israel out to Golis, sent them to Bobo. However, this was not the Churban yet. Next month, on Tishabov, the, the Muzaradon, the general Abnuchanetza broke into Yerushalayim, and towards evening he set fire to the Kurdish Kodeshim, to the base of Mikdash, and setting fire to it, the Hechal began to rise upwards towards heaven. The Gemara says that Kaviyachal was stepped down, heaven stepped down the Hechal and pushed it back down to earth. This was to symbolize the fact that the Hashkocha had been removed. Ini Hashem to use his terms, the eyes of Hashem are constantly upon Eretz Yisrael. Hashkocha, a special, there's always Hashkocha Prati everywhere is by Hashem. Individual supervision. Eretz Yisrael has a special Hashkocha Prati, and this was removed at the time, which made Eretz Yisrael no longer, which made it defenseless. And that's how it was destroyed then, set fire to by the Muzaradan. The Gemara says that, to finish this point first, complete this, after this destruction, Nebuchadnezzar appointed as a temporary king, Gedalia ben Achikam, for the remaining Jews in Eretz Yisrael. Now this meant they could still be, it was still possible there would be a kingdom of Jews, a land of Eretz Yisrael governed by the Jews. However, this last ray of hope last candle of light was extinguished by a group of evil people who assassinated Gedaliah ben Achikam on the day after Rosh Hashanah, Gimel Tishrei, and they also killed a lot of the custom there, which so angered Bovel that they came and cleared out that it just so completely. Again, the Yerizal says that this was the... We know that on Rosh Hashanah you have two days of Rosh Hashanah, Two days of Din, the Yemei Hadin. First day is called Dino Kashio, Hash Dinim. Second day after the Hash Day of Judgment is over, we have Dino Rafia, softer, much more eased. The third day, if that's the case, the third day should be much softer as far as Gizedes, as far as decrees from heaven. How come that this Hash decree happened on the third day? Same Gedaliah, we fast that day because of the death of Gedaliah. How come that this happened on the third day when it should have been a complete absence of decrees of Gezedus? Rizal says that it is the blowing of the shofar which brings about this hamtokas dinim, the softening of these Gezedus, because on the third day suddenly the shofar is stopped. It was possible for the Gezedus to become this either once more, become aroused. And this brought about the decree where Gedaliah was assassinated, the Jews were driven out. Now the last words of the Navi Lachem are that many years later, many years later, after Nebuchadnezzar's death, his son, Evil Neredach, king of Bovel, took Yehoyachin out of prison. If you recall, Yehoyachin was the one who went to appease the king. He was put into prison by Nebuchadnezzar took him out of prison and allowed him to eat at the king's table from then on, for the rest of his life. But of course, this was still the period of Golas. This Golas lasted for 70 years. Finally, the Jews came back to build a second base of Mikdash. However, to touch upon a point, 
that the Gemara speaks about. First, the Muzanadon, the general, the Gemara says, was sent to complete the destruction of the base of Mikdash and Yerushalayim. This was a very important victory for Bavel. This meant they'd become the rulers of the world. It's always Yerushalayim that is the center. In all generations, Yerushalayim is a center of controversy. Those that rule Yerushalayim consider themselves world rulers. Even though it seems it's a very tiny city, yet it's most important. It is the center of the world. So in this case, the Gemara says, how come that Nebuchadnezzar did not go himself? He sent his general Nebuchadnezzar. Gemara answers, Nebuchadnezzar was a very loyal general. He went there and he carved out the picture of Nebuchadnezzar on his coach, military coach. He carved it out so that he would not take the honor, the glory of this conquest. He would give the credit to the king. In order to be successful in this mission, Nebuchadnezzar sent to Nebuchadnezzar 300 mules loaded with special metal hatchets. Very powerful metal. These were so powerful, the metal was so strong, it was forged type of steel that could actually cut through the strongest of other metals. He sent these metals, these hatchets, in order to break through the gates of Yerushalayim and attacking it. There are a number of gates in Yerushalayim. Yomar says that they took these hatchets and attacked one gate. And every single one of these hatchets was destroyed, was broken, and tried to break down this one single gate. Till just one was left over. At that point, the Muzadad became so dejected, he was ready to give up, ready to return. The voice came from heaven and said to, called out, don't leave, because right now, the time has come for the Khurban, for the destruction. What happened until now was to show demonstrate the fact that no weapons can overcome Yerushalayim. That is, the city of Hashem, all the weapons you use are worthless compared to the protection of Hashem. Once Hashem removes his protection, anything can defeat the city. For example, now, that protection is removed. At that point, the Muzadad took the remaining hatchet, turned it with the back, not the sharp edge, but the dull edge, struck at this gate, and the gate fell apart. He entered then, set fire to the face of Mikdash, and began a series of butchery that was unparalleled. The blood flowed through the Yerushalayim, countless victims of his ruthlessness. There were literally rivers of blood. They began to feel a sense of power, greatness. Conceit. Again, a voice from heaven came down and called him and said, Don't boast. It is not your power. You have conquered, you have vanquished, you have defeated a dead nation. You have set fire to a burnt temple. You have won a victory over a helpless, non existent entity. There's nothing for you to boast about. Yomar says further that the Muzadad went on in his act of destruction and he came to one spot we had this story 
previously, Git, whatever the Gemara repeats it here, is in Hedron, so it pays for us to go through it again briefly. He came to a spot where he saw blood on the ground. This was the blood of Zechariah Hanavi. He recalls he had been killed previously, and he saw this blood lying on the ground. This blood was seething, it was boiling, bubbling, and the ground refused to absorb this blood. He was very curious about this blood, and he asked the Jews around, remaining Jews, what is this blood? They were very much afraid to tell him the truth. They said, this is the blood of carbonus, of sacrifices. So he said, I, I like to see animal blood act in this manner. He called to bring to him lambs, goats, he slaughtered them, compared the blood, and of course there was no comparison. He said to them, the Kahanim, he said, tell me the truth. What blood is this? If you don't tell me, you'll all die immediately. And he finally confessed this was the blood of Zechariah Hanavi, and he said his, his blood refuses to rest. He's very angry. The fact that his blood was, was spilt in vain, after all the good he had done for the Jews. So he said, I am going to appease Zechariah Hanavi. This cruel butcher was now going to appease the blood of this Navi. How will I appease him, he said. I'm going to avenge this murder. He had all the Kahanim brought before him, and personally he slaughtered all of them in front of the blood. He stood by and watched, and he saw the blood continue to seethe, to boil. He said, it's not enough. Apparently the blood, Zechariah wants more revenge than this. Bring me all the elders, all the sages, the leaders of the Jews, and place them, line them in front of this blood. He took all the elders of Yerushalayim, and he slaughtered every one of them. Still the blood continued to boil. He went on further, and he took the women, children, the small children that go to the beginning classes of yeshiva. They are called the pure souls. He killed them too. The blood still continued to boil. And finally he became very nervous about this. He cried out, Zechariah, I have killed the best of them. Do you want me to appease you by wiping out every single Jew in Eretz Israel? Is this what you want? At that moment, the blood stopped boiling. Blood came to rest. The next moment, a thought struck the Muzaradan. He said to himself, I have just witnessed a miracle. I have just seen what penalty there is to pay for murder. Here's a case of one single innocent person was killed, and what a severe penalty had to be paid for it. So many thousands of Jews, good ones, innocent ones, paid with their lives because of the murder of one prophet. If that is the penalty for killing one prophet, what penalty do I deserve for all the countless tens of thousands of Jews, innocent people that I have killed? How can I ever atone for my act? He says he was filled with a deep sense of remorse. A sense of tshuva that was so overwhelming that he removed his regal garments and sent a note back to Babel saying that he had resigned his status. He went into the, among the Jews and told them he wants to convert, he wants to become a Jew. This, again, was the right moment to convert. This type of conversion was the purest possible. Because, as we mentioned previously, a ger is judged by the time that he converts. 
if he converts at a time when the Jews are in their glory, that means that he's not really sincere. He doesn't really believe in the, their religion. He wants to have the pleasures that come with a nation that is basking in glory. But if a Ger comes to convert when the Jews are oppressed, persecuted, and suffering, that means that his Gedus' conversion is definitely a pure one due to Amuna, propelled by a true feeling of faith. This was the case of the Muzaradun who converted and spent the rest of his life in doing tshuva. Gemara says that in a case like this, we find that even the Muzaradun, as evil as he was, was still accepted by Hashem. He was Zecha, that just as we say that from an Amhoris can sometimes come forth great Amidah Hachamim, from the Vuzaradon came forth leading figures, leading figures in the leading figures of the rabbis of the Gemara. This is a sign that a person, no matter how far gone he is, he still should not ever lose hope. He can always return. Not only if he committed sins against heaven, but even against mankind too. There is no time when it is impossible to do tshuva. Tshuva is always accepted. This was the case of the Buchadnezzar's general, who after his resigning, of course, the Buchadnezzar himself took over, completed the task of enslaving the remaining Jews. And we'll have the story later on when the Buchadnezzar, for a certain act, was punished. His punishment consisted of his being banished for a number of years, and while he was banished from the kingdom, his son, Evil Merodach, took over. Now, when he came back, he found his son on the throne, he immediately imprisoned him, so that later on, when the Buchanetzar died, Evil Merodach took over the throne. His first act was to dig up the body of the Buchanetzar from the grave, and to drag him through the streets to make sure that he was not alive yet. He was afraid he might come back again. So he made sure that he would be very, very dead. And then, when this was done, he turned to take Yehoyachin out of prison. That last statement we made about Yehoyachin being taken out of prison, freed, because he was the first prisoner of Bukhanetzah taken from the Jews. This was a sign by Evel Merodach that he wanted to somehow atone for the act of Bukhanetzah. This he did, and with this statement, we come to a close, the Lochem base, this part of the Navi. We hope to continue, perhaps conclude the story of Navi in the coming chapters. Particularly, we should be zecher, speaking about the Churban, we should be zecher to the next part of the Navuah, seeing the rebuilding, revival, return of all Jews to Eretz Yisrael, with the coming of Mashiach.